When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve Jay. We've been trying some new things lately, and today we're going to continue to stretch out a little bit. We have two guests with different perspectives on a new reissue project. Pop Sicko was a Santa Barbara band with everything going for it, but they wouldn't make it. Today, we're with S.W. Lawton, an author and the editor of Go All the Way, a literary appreciation of power pop, and its companion volume, Go Further, more literary appreciations of power pop. We had Steve and co-editor Paul Myers on podcasts to discuss both books and power pop in general. Welcome back, Steve. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We're also joined by Marco DeSantis, who was the bass player in Pop Sicko and wrote the foreword and is interviewed in Steve's oral history to Would Have Been's The Official Oral History of Pop Sicko. Thanks for joining us, Marco. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So there's no hard rules here, so feel free to jump in. But I want to start with Steve. Uh, Marco wrote something, and he thanked you in the foreword to the book, and writes, What began as a text message has grown into a record and a book. you care to fill in the blanks for our listeners? You know, uh, Marco and I got to know each other in Santa Barbara when I was first up there going to college and playing in a band called The Wonderfuls with my friend Keith Brown. And at the time, Marco was playing in a band called Lost Kittens that was a local Santa Barbara band. And we ended up playing a couple club shows together. And, you know, that's where we first got to know each other. Um, and then obviously Marco ended up playing in the band Popsicko with Keith Brown. And so we've been bonded over the band Popsicko and the Santa Barbara music scene for decades now. We, we live down the street from each other, raising our kids together. We're very close friends. And one thing we always wanted to do was find a way to sort of honor Keith Brown's memory and the music that Popsicko made together, especially this album, Off to a Bad Start, which is still a really fantastic collection of like alternative rock sort of power pop songs that not enough people, at least to my mind, and I think to Marco's mind, had heard about. So it was something we had kind of been booting around for a few years. And then when we got into the height of the pandemic, I just kind of decided it was time. So I texted Marco one day and said, hey, would you be up for me interviewing you and possibly Mick and Tim from the band? And we could just do an oral history and I'll throw it up in my blog. And 
it really spiraled from there. Like I like to say the universe kind of took over and it became this much bigger, more beautiful, comprehensive project. Well, it's nice to hear that something positive has come out of the pandemic. Let me bring Marco in. You had me with the opening quote in the forward from Richard Hell. I'm a huge fan of his, and I'm curious why you chose that. Well, I mean, honestly, it's I'm a huge fan of uh, of Richard Hell too, and I had read that book years ago, uh, his book Go Now, and it just always stuck with me. You know, it's like one of those dog-eared pages in a book that you know you just you know I tell my friends about it like. And then my band, my other band, you know, that, that came years after after Popsico was called Sugar Cult, and we had a, a, a big song called Memory. I just have always been sort of a collector of things, a collector of experiences, a collector of, of memories, a collector of just stuff. If you could see my little studio here, it's just like rock and roll refuse from uh, just pop cultural jive everywhere, records, books. You know, just you just get to a point when I was I was traveling for almost twenty years, constantly on the road, and you just can only carry so much stuff, and then come home and stick it in your garage. So I just kind of started taking a lot of pictures, writing a lot, and just kind of focusing on collecting memories. And if you could turn this way, and it would yield interesting memories, or turn this way, and it would yield something more predictable, I tend to just take the more scenic route. You know, when I was reflecting on Popsico, it's one of my greatest memories, and to me, it's just evidence that you got to do the things while you can do them because you really know, you know, our friend Keith Brown is, is a testament to how you never know how much time anyone really has. So you got to document it. Love that. So Popsico was a product of the Santa Barbara scene and grew out of several bands that you played in, Marco. Can you give us the dime version of how Popsico arrived? Well, okay. So I was in, you know, I was a kid in high school and had a band with my friends and then eventually moved down to LA our old drummer was kind of just floating around because he didn't want to move to LA. So it was like, you know, that line in the sand, like, we're going to make a, we're going to go for this if, you, if you're not in, you know. And, and so he was kicking around Santa Barbara still. And I had gone home and visited, you know, visit my parents or whatever. And I was popping by, you know, making the rounds at all the record stores like you would do if you're a music nerd like <laughs> me. <laughs> all of us. And I popped into this place out in Isla Vista, which is the little college town called Rock House Records that was, um, was being run by some friends of ours. And this cool looking dude with bleach blonde hair was working there. And uh, he looked familiar to me. And he, he introduced himself to me. He's like, hey, I'm, uh, I think I, I met you before. You you know, um, I'm uh, Keith. I was in the band The Wonderfuls, and uh, which was the band he had with Steve Coulter. Um, oh, sorry, S.W. Loudon. Sorry, <laughs> I just outed your uh, your real name. But, and yeah. you. <laughs> anyway so uh he asked me if i knew any drummers and i was like well actually the old drummer from my old band is is you know kicking around and he lives like a few blocks away from here so i drew him a map to his house because back then we didn't have like phones and everything we did and then i forgot about it and i go away and i come back to town and i hear hey you know um your buddy stopped by my house and um, now i'm playing drums in his new band so he had this band called Glitterbug. uh it was keith and um, this guy, Steve Sherlock, who, another Steve, <laughs> who would later go on to be in a band called Nerf Herder, which have done many things. And then the other guy in the band, I believe was Dan Kern, who would go <laughs> on to be the lead guitar player in uh, Czar, this guy playing drums, this Steve playing drums. Uh, so it's very interconnected, as you can see, you know, a couple other people involved too. another guy named Oz was part of Glitterbug, who's also involved in the Brothers Steve, which is a band I'm sure you guys all know about because it's your namesake. <laughs> 
Yeah. So anyways, long story short, about a year later, I moved my, my band in LA didn't really work out. And I moved back to Santa Barbara to sort of pick up the pieces. And as soon as I get to town, Steve calls me up and says, Hey man, um, Glitterbug's kind of over, but we're thinking about trying something different. And you know, would you be down to come and jam? So I, I meet Keith and, and Steve and we start playing and just kind of running through some songs and it was really fun. And then me and Keith, you know, I'd never really known him up close and we really just kind of hit it off and got this idea to like, hey, let's form a band. Like, I think we both had in common that we were very uh, ambitious and wanting to do do it for for reals rather than just to sort of do it as a distraction. But I think me and Keith had that little like stars in our eyes, like, hey, just maybe this could actually be something we we could like, you know, we could we can make it, you know, or something like that, you know? And, and so we went for it. We, we, I found the best guitar player that I knew about in town that was still sitting around. And this, it was this guy, Tim Cullen. He could also sing really well and write songs. And we put together this band and we called it the cardboard superstars. And it was sort of short lived. And again, I'm very happy for Steve Sherlock's one of my best friends and very happy because he became successful in the band Nerf Herder. But at the time he was just not in that headspace. He was not like ready to do it as like a, more than a hobby. You know, he was like, Oh, I can only play shows on the weekends. I only want to practice once a week. <laughs> Me and Keith were like workaholics, you know, we're- hello Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Like, no, we want to do this all the time. We didn't have the heart to like kick him out of the band. So what we did was we just broke up Cardboard Superstars and then we reformed it with a different vibe, sort of a different look and a different drummer and called it Popsico. And kudos to you because you came up with that name, which uh, I think is really great. Uh, oh, how, how did you come up with that? It's just. Well, I found these matches from Big Stir Records and there was uh, this logo on the thing. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stay. That's that. not the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not the story. It's just, uh, you know, I don't know if you actually, if you look in the, in the oral history in the book, we've got a bunch of little like, you know, um, flyers and visuals and like, this is Keith. When I first met him, like he gave me his phone number and like, like we were, he wrote down like the chart for like the song he had called Lady Starlet. <laughs> that was like actually a glitter bug song we were going to learn. 
And somewhere in here you see the band name list. So you're all, I was always coming up with like band names and song titles and stuff like that. And so I just kind of printed it out and gave it to the guys. And the only one that more than two of us agreed on was Popsicle. So that's how the name stuck. And it's a great yeah. band name. It is a good yeah. name. <laughs> You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with S.W. Lawden and Marco DeSantis, who are behind the reissue of a vinyl LP and an oral history that S.W. Lawden's written for the band Popsicles Off to a Bad Start. And Steve, Marco kind of mentioned this. You were best friends with and played in a band with Keith Brown at a young age. Can you tell us about him? Uh, yeah, I would love to. Keith and I met really by accident. We got sat next to each other, assigned seating in a high school English class where we were going to school in Manhattan Beach. And it was a big enough school that we were not aware of each other prior to getting sat next to each other. You know, and he was this sort of smart, stylish, thoughtful kind of dude. And I was more of like a blue collar, knucklehead, drink beer in the park with your friends kind of dude at the time. And on paper, we didn't have much in common, but we kind of quickly bonded over music. And it, he mentioned one day, I think after a couple of weeks, that he was just starting to play guitar. And I had a little drum kit. At that point, we were kind of off to the races. And for the next seven or eight years, kind of inseparable, went on a lot of adventures together, played music together. He was the guy that I saw so many of the most memorable shows that I ever saw with. I saw the Ramones a bunch of times, Husker Du, Gun Club, Alex Chilton, Camper Van Beethoven, Johnny Thunders. We saw Soul Asylum, I think, a dozen times. Uh, we saw The Replacements a handful of times and actually got to hang out with those guys for a couple of pretty crazy nights. And so, you know, he was a very shy, introspective guy on the one hand, which I really loved about Keith. If you got him alone, you could have deep conversations. On the other hand, he had a real taste for chaos, which was, you know, jived well with where I was coming from. And so you could come up with the craziest idea in the world and Keith was always up for it. And you would just find yourself in his car and <laughs> try not to get arrested, basically. Keith would double down on the craziest, yeah. idea, the, the craziest idea you could have. He would double down on it, you know. Yeah, I find it so interesting, though, because, you know, between school and music, which, you know, was a huge link for most a lot of kids. Uh, Marco, you met him in a record store, which was the other kind of what I did in my spare time. And it's just really cool that somehow that puts this band together, you know, I, but it's just very cool. And uh, especially at a young age, high school and all that, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, what you know, I think I was just out of high school. All the guys in Popsicle were a couple years older than me. So I was kind of the baby of the family, but I think it was a really nice balance because I had the sort of like, I was probably a little bit immature and just like, you know, like rambunctious. And then they were probably like, had gone through the wash and dry cycle of adulthood for a year or two. Keith was super organized. He was serious. He had good gear. He had a studio, a, you know, rehearsal space. He had his shit together. You know, like Steve was saying, like he, he also would just go nuts and you could like, you know, I learned a lot from Keith, you know, I learned about like, you know, he, he could talk to girls, he could, he could fight, he could drink, he could Perfect. think, he could read, he could, you know, he could write songs. He, he was a really interesting guy. Um, and, and it's interesting that you brought up all those shows you went to with Keith, because I kind of forget, because my, my memories with Keith are so much of being in a band with him and playing music. But, you know, once you got drawn into his universe, 
it was equal parts about like getting a contact high off of his, you know, love of rock and roll. Like mm. he would take me, you know, throw me in his car and bring me to see a show in LA, buy us records, you know, give us loan us records. Like he was really prescribing his like worldview of music through the records and the shows he would take you to. It was really cool. It was really cool. We were talking earlier about the Santa Barbara scene. Uh, Steve and I talked right before you came on. And, you know, being on an East Coast guy, I was not aware that there was such a scene. And, you know, you're quoted quite a bit in, in the oral history, as are the other band members uh, surviving. But you mentioned a lot of them were taking their cues then from the new Seattle funk metal alternative rock sounds of the day. But your band was none of the above. And I'm just curious how you would describe Popsicle sound and influences. In any small town, we were from in a small town, a small music scene, there's invariably there's going to be the bands that are kind of the outliers. And then there's going to be the bands that are like what you would expect. Like, you know, you would expect like the, the popular music of the day. There's going to be that it, some iteration of that band in every town. You know, every town's going to have their version of the Chili Peppers and Soundgarden and whatever. And like all four of us, me, Keith, Mick and Tim, like none of us were like four guys that answered an ad in the paper that said, hey, looking for someone who sounds like this. So we were all sort of into music that lived outside of the law, but we could all hang together. And so I think that's what makes a band it's not an easy target. You can't just like sum it up really quick. The ba- most of the bands I like are those kinds of bands, you know, where it's like they're bigger than the sum of their parts because it's not just four guys that are on the exact same page. So that they creates a little bit of grease and tension, and that kind of creates something that is unique. It just started getting a little rougher around the edges, and I kind of liked it. And that's where we like kicked into more of the like, you know, a lot of people described us as like cheap trick meets the replacements. It became a little bit more Midwest. You know, and and blue collar, and not quite as like um, London circa '72, not quite as T Rexy. You know, <laughs> although we love that shit too. It's just you know, it just seemed to be more something we could do. And then, and then honestly, I have to remember that you know, for better or for worse, um, Keith became like obsessed with, as we all did. Keith became very obsessed with Nirvana. Oh, that's a deep well. And you mentioned this. And I think in, in the uh, oral history, it's guitarist Tim Cullen who used that description as cheap trick meets the replacements. And Steve, you're the power pop guy. What's What say you? I mean, it is crystal clear in hindsight that that is a fantastic encapsulation of Popsico's core sound. And I think Marco touched on it, but I, I don't think it can be overstated Keith and I growing up in Manhattan Beach, like in the cradle of hardcore punk rock and like with all of this fantastic music swirling around, we were absolutely obsessed with Minneapolis. We were so obsessed with Husker Du, Soul Asylum and The Replacements, number one, that I hear it in a lot of his music. At the same time, Tim, who is just so talented as a songwriter and guitar player and a singer and you listen to all the bands he's been in like summer camp and the playing favorites and his solo music you can always divine a cheap trick thread in there but it ladders back to the beatles and so those two things really made up the core sound of popsicle keith was bringing the alternative college rock side of the equation with some pop and tim was bringing much more of the pure pop angle to it when i listen to modern bands like daisy or super crush or like Liquid Mike or Extra Arms, all these bands that are doing guitar heavy 90s sounding music. That's when I was like, man, more people need to know about Popsicle because it's sort of timeless. To answer your question, Cheap Trick Meets the Replacements is spot on. 
I like cheap trico. You can edit that out, Steve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One thing I want to add to that, though, is like me and Keith used to l literally like have this conversation out loud with each other while we'd be driving. And I remember how Keith would drive. Remember, he'd always have his back really straight and be holding like the, you know, he had this really specific thing. And uh, I can just see him like, I mean, he's been gone for so long, but I can exactly just like picture being in his car driving somewhere and having a conversation with him. And, you know, we would talk about like the things we liked about all these bands, but also talk about the ways that we wish that things would have panned out differently. Like we never liked that Cheap Trick were always this sort of consummate kind of underdog. And, and the, I mean, that's what made them cool and made, they've never, you know, they've never really lost their cool. I mean, maybe for like a few times they, 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 they flirted with it, but like, you know, they were just always like sort of consummate opening band and the sort of band that like no one, they were kind of a flag without a nation. And same thing with the replacements. Like they would always block their own shot and kind of chop themselves off because I, I feel like both of those bands could have been like huge. Like they could have been like, and you talk about them in the same breath, you say like Tom Petty or Bruce Springsteen or something like that. Right. But so we were always like, I, I like those influences, but like, we want to go like, we saw ourselves as becoming a band that, you know, we, we had no limit. Like we were just like, we weren't trying to be like, Hey, let's just be this obscure thing that only like cool kids know about. We were like, we want to be as like big as anybody. We want to be as big as Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Like, why not? <laughs> you know, look at Soul Asylum. They, they made a rant run for it and they did great. You know, they did indeed. You're listening to all music podcasts, a member of Pantheon media. We're speaking with S.W. Lawden and Marco DeSantis, who are behind the reissue of a vinyl LP and an oral history that S.W. Lawden's written for the band Popsicles Off to a Bad Start. So one of the things that I noticed was it's a very typical scene, but the band, you know, got a following, a local following up and down the coast. And that's probably similar to Boston to New York. You're going up and down L.A. to San Francisco. And then they start to open up for some pretty impressive bands. Yeah, we got to uh, to open for Green Day, you know, right when they put out their breakthrough record, which was called Dookie. We opened for Weezer in L.A. when they were just an L.A. club band. Funny thing about that Green Day show, we posted the flyer on the Instagram page for Popsico recently. We asked who was at the show, and one of the memories was I was there, and what I remember was not many people were in attendance, <laughs> which is just funny to think about because, like, 60 days later, Dookie is, like, the biggest right. record in the oh, world. Yeah. Totally. And that's, yeah. you know, it's funny how that would happen. I remember Guns N' Roses was set to play in Santa Barbara, right when Appetite for Destruction came out and they had to cancel the show because not enough tickets sold. Oh, <laughs> and then like, you know, a month later, their single blew up and that was like, you know. The biggest band in the world, like right after <laughs> Day that. Day is darkest before the dawn. But yeah, man, so it was cool. We got to open for, for some of those bands and play shows. I mean, it was just a moment in the, in the early to mid 90s. There was just, as we all know, in retrospect now, there was this amazing kind of sea change happening culturally you know, just letting go of the 80s and um, and just it was just so inevitable. We could all feel it. And then it just started to like, you know, manifest in all these amazing new bands and, you know, festivals and scenes and the whole thing, just fashion, culture, lifestyle. It was just it was really kind of cool. It was a really it was a really fertile moment culturally. It was kind of fun to be right there at ground zero when all that was unfolding. And we thought like, hey, this is kind of exciting to to be like the dawn of a new decade and be 
you know, one of the one of the bands that they're buzzing in our in our hometown scene and regional scene. It's cool. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to give too much away from the oral history, but rumors of a big record deal don't come to fruition. And I have to admit, to me, it was in true punk fashion that you go DIY and off to a bad start is out. Well, we didn't get a deal. We just, we, we were meeting with record companies, record companies were looking at us. They were coming to our shows and, you know, that I guess you would call that a showcase, but you know, it's the, it's the oldest joke. Like how many A&R people does it take to screw on a light bulb? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> you know? And that's the thing is like, no one ever wanted to like make the first move. They wanted to wait to see what the other guy who was there was going to do. And, you know, I could see that I had had a few friends that were in bands I kind of had a notion that that was kind of going on, um, that sort of scene where it's like, oh, this could just drag out for like a year where you just play the song and dance of like, hey, we want to hear more music. And we were just, we just felt ready to make a record. So we just had that attitude where we were like, you know, we had a lot of bands from our hometown that were like kind of punk rock bands and underground bands. Keith had been in a band called Pennywise. I had been in a band that turned into the band Lagwagon. I'd been in a band called Section 8 that morphed into Lagwagon. So we had a lot of those roots. So it, wasn't, it didn't seem abnormal to us to if you can't get someone else to do it for you just do it yourself and you know keith borrowed some money and we booked some studio time and found a guy uh out there who actually this guy found us and wanted to produce us and and so the stars just kind of aligned and we we're like you know what we'll make a record and there's no harm in this because we can do this ourselves and if someone wants to sign us it's kind of like you're showing them the proof of concept you're going, look, we made our own record. We're playing our own shows. What can you do for us? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you better make it worth our while because we're going to do this one way or another. And I think that's a, you know, it's definitely something even I tell artists today. I'm like, you know, uh, you got to start your own fire. You can't expect someone else to to start your fire for you. You know, you start your own fire and then, then you charge admission if someone wants to pour gasoline on it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you, you obviously have a lot of passion and, and if Cheap Trick meets the replacements meets passion, I'm curious what the reception was to the record when you put it out. We had gone from being a band that no one understood in Santa Barbara at first. They were like, what's going on? Like what? And to a band that almost everybody came around to, like people from all different walks of music, even like people that were in like thrash metal bands would come to our shows and like, you know, we earned people's respect by just sticking to what we did and doing and just getting better and better at it over time. And, you know, sometimes you just have to let the music do the talking. You come, you come see us play and you're going to see Tim Cullen play guitar and he's an incredible guitar player. You're going to see Keith singing on stage and, and, you know, you just believe him, you know, you know how it is when you see like a singer, <laughs> it just, it looks like he's living the life he's singing about in his songs. And it's just, you just believe it. And you see, you know, me and Mick, and we're just, we're, we're going to make a, we're going to make a giant rock and roll mess up there. And it's not going to be tidy. It's going to look cool. It's someone's going to, something's going to get broken. Someone's going to, something's going to get spilled, you know? And it's just like, it, it, we were all in love with rock and roll. And just, you know, the idea was like, we're not trying to go out there and play some like perfect show. We're, go, we're trying to go out there and just like, kind of like let the rock and roll dogs run free, run wild on the beach, <laughs> you know, and that's what we would do when we play live. And I think people respond to that after a while. They go, oh, I get it. And our listeners may have a feeling that something's coming and, and they'd be right. It's not good. Uh, but the band starts to fracture. And what happened after the record? Well, once we made the record um, and things started to kind of, you know, more and more attention, more and more bigger shows, the label started to circle more and more and we started getting pretty cool opportunities. You know, the writing was certainly on the wall that it seemed like it wasn't going to be a matter of if it was going to be more of a matter of when, like we would 
kind of have our breakthrough or moment because it just seemed like the kind of music, the, the, the vibe we, were, we had been working on for a few years. You know, there was more and more records coming out. Soul Asylum was getting big. Nirvana was as big, you know, big. Foo Fighters were on the horizon. Weezer was going, you know, it was just Green Day. Like bands we had come up with were starting to pop. And we just felt like it feels like it's about to happen. But we had this this kind of dark secret that we were hiding around that time. And that was that Keith had had unfortunately fallen into drug addiction, you know, which a lot of people struggled with at that time, you know. So we were like, you know, kind of... Uh, I don't know what the, what, how to articulate it, but it was a really unusual situation to feel like this extreme excitement about what was going to happen and what was around the corner, but also this kind of like dark family secret that we were kind of, you know, having to contend with and knowing that was probably, you know, it was our, most of our first experience actually dealing with drug addiction. We didn't really know what to expect, you know, but we knew it probably wasn't going to end well, you know, and unfortunately, yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of a, Tim and me would sort of hang out and like, you know, riding each other's cars to shows and then Mick and Keith would hang out and then they would usually stay up a little later than us and go out and go to the after after party when we, you know, so sort of got a little bit clicky where it was like Mick and Keith and then with not as in the Rolling Stones, but not too far from the <laughs> early 70s Rolling Stones lifestyle. And then um, then me and Tim. And, you know, that's, that just naturally starts to happen in bands, you know, which is, it's fine. We all had, you know, Tim and Keith had a relationship. Me and Keith had a relationship. Me and Mick had a relationship. Tim. We all had like, a, you know, shorthand with each other and we were all like brothers, but, you know, it just naturally felt like it was kind of like Mick and Keith were the ones who were going to go super hard and me and Tim were the ones that were maybe going to like eventually go to bed. <laughs> and like wake up in the morning and, and go on a hike or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we were the, we weren't quite the the uh, debaucherous rock and rollers. Although back then we you know I think about how me and Tim were back then compared to now that would have been considered debauchery. Yeah. <laughs> but by by the early '90s standards, we were the we were the lightweights. <laughs> um, but yeah, so unfortunately, it sort of got like that for a while, and there was even a moment where the band kind of just fell apart. But there was a moment where a friend of ours had moved to New York to become a VJ on MTV. This guy named Steve Isaacs. And he had a band and, you know, he's making some money. So he got a chance to fly a few of his friends out to New York for like a summer. And he flew Tim out to play guitar for him. And, and we, of course, we gave Tim his, our blessing. We're like, dude, you got to take that opportunity to go live in New York and be bopping around with a dude who's working on MTV. Like, I think he wore our Popsicle shirt on MTV, which was kind of cool. <laughs> So for a while, there was this moment where the band was kind of pushed on pause and like Keith did a few shows on his own with some different groups of friends and I was playing with some other people. And then when Tim came back, we started playing again and it just got bigger and bigger. And then, you know, unfortunately, it just got to a point where we were like, we kind of had to just do like almost like an intervention. We just had to like stop everything and tell Keith we weren't going to do anything else until until he would, could find a way to get some help. Again, we were all so young. I mean, I think back, I used to think Keith was so, such a grown up, you know, back then. And now I think back, I'm like, he was like 23. You know what I mean? Like, well, he was a kid. But, you know, at the time I was like, well, you know, he'll figure it out. And, and he, he just felt really betrayed. He was like, you know, I paid for this record and you guys are, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it was, it was really kind of a, a nasty period of time. Me and Tim actually started a side project band called Cooler. And we started playing some shows with these with this other guitar player and this other drummer. And we were having fun and we were doing the songs that Tim had written for Popsico and then a bunch of other new ones he had. 
yeah, so it was this moment where we were like, well, we'll see. Popsicle's kind of on this hiatus. We'll see what happens. And then, you know, kind of talk about getting it together again. And then, you know, I don't know. I don't know the whole story here. Uh, you know, I won't get the timeline exactly right. But around that time is when, unfortunately, Keith was uh, killed in a car accident. Yeah. And that just kind of was like, this just threw our whole world upside down. And we didn't really pick up the pieces and go there until recently when we, when Coulter texted me and said, hey, man, we need to tell this story about Popsico. You know, we all got busy with our own lives and our own bands. And, you know, luckily a lot of us had success in, in different music projects. But, you know, you just all my life when I'd be doing press for other bands, I'd always talk about like, oh, man, when I was originally in this band Popsico, that was supposed to be the one, you know, Popsico is the one that got away, you know. And Steve, you mentioned, uh, you know, there's a reason people haven't heard of the band. And this is the worst possible thing that could happen at the worst possible time. This guy's your, you know, an early best friend. And, uh, you know, were you there for that period? Uh, no, actually, uh, the way I found out about the car accident was the single worst phone call I've ever gotten in my life. And it was actually the next morning at about 7 a.m. I was living back in Southern California starting in a job as a newspaper reporter and editor in my hometown newspaper. And so I had to get up early. Not that I was still living the rock and roll lifestyle and staying awake till 4 a.m., but then getting up at 7 and going and editing for eight hours. And the phone rang and I had roommates and I was like, well, this isn't going to be good. So I picked it up and it was actually Marco and Tim. They had been up all night letting people know the terrible news. And I remember they said to me, we waited till last to call you because we didn't know what to say to you. But then they delivered the news and it was absolutely devastating to yeah. hear that he had died. It turned everyone's world upside down because, I mean, he was our dear friend. And, you know, obviously Steve's childhood, from, you know, teenagehood friend, best friend. And, and, you know, someone who I was in a, you know, had been in a band with for almost four years at the time. You know, when you when you play music with someone, it's a real intimate thing. It's an exchange and you make records. It feels like you've had children together. You know, it's like, it feels like it feel, it's a really interesting um, relationship to have with somebody. And honestly, there was so much hope for Popsico, but even within Popsico, we all kind of looked up to Keith. Like me and Mick could never have had the success we had in, in our subsequent bands had we not had that experience with someone like Keith. He was really someone who showed us like, this is how you do it if you want to be a professional. You know, yeah, this he, is how you do it. He was that guy always. He was doing that for our band in high school and our first band in college. He was really somebody that always kind of plowed ahead and showed you that it was possible. If you dedicated yourself to it, you could achieve great things. That's the spirit of what this whole project is about, is trying to tell people about this foundational, super important experience and moment that we all shared together that was so profound that 30 years later, we still want to tell people about. Right. Because there are things in your life, you know, like you, there's those photos your parents have of you, you know, before you got your teeth fixed <laughs> or with that ridiculous polyester shirt that they made you wear for picture day. You know, there's those things, those embarrassing things where you're like, oh, my God. And it's weird when it comes to Popsico. It's like I feel lucky. I'm like proud to have been part of something that has didn't only age well, it, it it's probably appreciated in, in coolness. You know, it's probably even cooler now than it was in its day. And that's a real wonderful thing. And, and I don't mean to say that in a, in a kind of conceited way, but like I kind of had a notion because I've always been way more of a music fan 
I've always identified myself as a music fan primarily and maybe as a musician, like somewhere further down the list. Someone like me, it's like you become a musician because the, the front row center ticket isn't close enough. You want to get on the stage, you know? And so you want to climb inside it. And when you come at it from the fan attitude, and that's what, what we did, me, you know, me and Keith kind of just like, we're like, let's put together the band we wish existed and let's make Popsicle be that band. You know, to go back and listen to these songs, which, you know, this we've been working on this project for a long time now. So I've, I've gone back and listened to these songs and it's like, these things really stand the test of time. You know, I don't think they sounded like cool, hip, contemporary music in their day. I think it's just timeless. Like, I think these could have been made 10 years earlier. They could have been made 10 years later. They could have been made three months ago, you know, and that was, that's something you, you can only hope to and aspire to, uh, to achieve. And I just, I'm just really pleased that we have this recording because, you know, none of us expected Keith to die young, you know, regardless of whether Popsico would have gotten back on track and Keith would have gotten clean or whatever would have happened, or Keith would have gone on and become a legendary producer, you know, towards the end of his life, he started producing, he produced um, Rydell High's first recording, produced another band in Santa Barbara called Speed Racer. It sounded kind of like Green Day. You knew Keith was going to be a contender. He had that undefinable something. And I feel lucky that I got to be in a band with him and kind of have some of that rub off on me. And I just feel so fortunate that we were able to document these songs. And we actually have a bunch of songs we recorded since this record. You know, shortly after it, we made a whole other batch of demos. We have a bunch of songs we recorded before this record. And hopefully we'll be able to get those out to the world at some point. But this record really is Popsico's kind of like love letter to the world. It's kind of our message in the bottle. And I'm stoked that it's finally like being able to be shared with people. It's a fascinating story, and, and I think uh, people really love the oral history. Thank you both for sharing this incredibly personal story. Can you give our listeners info on where to find this release and perhaps otherwise sample Popsico music and any other outlets or websites that you'd like to hip them to? Yeah, definitely. The album and the oral history have been reissued through Big Stir Records, so it's B-I-G-S-T-I-R records.com slash popsicle and then on instagram where the members of the band and the label and myself are active on popsicle's behalf it's just at popsicle sb as in santa barbara sounds fascinating and i can't wait to check out the music i i just i'm really honored to be on a podcast that focuses on books because i think a really important part of you know when i'm telling people i'm like yeah we're reissuing the popsicle record what to me, what's really unique about this is it's not just the record, it's also the story. You got the book too. And I felt like we can't just put the record out because the record's a great record. It can stand up on its own. But when you know the story, you know, having that context, because it's a lot of times when there's a record you from a long time ago that you haven't heard of, you assume, oh, well, it must be for a reason, maybe because it's not that good, right? And then you find like, once you know the story, you realize like, oh, well, this this record just never got its fair shot, you know? So this is really cool. I'm really glad it comes with this book and very uh, proud of the packaging and all that stuff. But we will say, right, there's only 250 copies available. If you're the kind of person that wants the actual thing to hold in your hand and, and treasure, um, then, you know... Get them now. You better act <laughs> fast because they're going to get scooped up pretty quick. But, you know, otherwise you'll be able to find the, you know, music on spotify and apple music and all that kind of stuff and actually you can check out a few of our songs there's about four songs including a, a non-album track called ashtray mouth that are available on streaming right now as we speak so you can check that out if you want to check it out but i but if you like it you know check out the record all right it's always an honor to be on here i love what you guys do and and i cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart 
for helping us tell this story because obviously it's very personal. It means a lot to us. So thank you guys very much. It's all about the story and thank you guys for joining us again. We also hope everyone out there listening has enjoyed these small song teasers from the forthcoming release and we encourage you to buy the LP. Hey, it also comes with a book. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.